for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome back to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. I'm back with me this week. We have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And from the Academy of Ideas, it's Jacob Reynolds. Hello. Coming up on today's show, the crimes of Lucy Letby, Sadiq Khan's lies about Ulez, the BDSM book that's being shown to preschoolers, and the demise of Yevgeny Prigozhin. So Lucy Letby was sentenced to life imprisonment this week with no chance of parole for the murder of seven babies and the attempted murder of six more. Now, Tom, we will never understand what's going on in Mm. this woman's head. We'll never be able to understand what motivated her to do this evil deed. But we can try and unpick what happened, why it wasn't stopped earlier by, you know, the people who should have been in charge. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, at first, I think everyone had such trouble just trying to digest the information of the crimes themselves, so evil, so depraved, so sustained over a long period of time. But as you read more into it, as we've seen the reports and the documentaries, BBC Panorama's come out, which lays it out in quite shocking detail. The thing that almost becomes more difficult to digest is how this was allowed to happen, or at least how was it allowed to happen for this long? Mm. So as far back as 2015, I think, you had consultants in the hospital in which Lucy Letby worked, cottoning on to the fact that she was the common denominator with all of these deaths of infants in the neonatal ward, raising concerns with the hospital management, being rebuffed, and it taking this increasingly kind of Kafkaesque and grotesque turn, particularly when the consultants who were really pushing for her to be taken off of the ward, to bring in the police for an investigation to begin, having to actually formally apologise to her because they had bought the management had bought her line that she was effectively being bullied and witch hunted by the by the consultant. So again, a lot of questions have been asked about the NHS. We've obviously had a string of scandals like this where you have hospital management desperate to keep a bad news story out of the headlines, desperate to make sure that um, any of their kind of failings aren't necessarily going to kind of become a national scandal, end up feeding those particular scandals. And I think broader questions that it raises about how this culture that you do get in with bureaucracies like an NHS hospital where the perpetuation of the institution and the defense of the institution yeah. ends up clouding out all else. And mm. as Brendan wrote about the site this week, the ease with which bureaucracy can kind of coexist with evil in that sense. So some really deep questions that need to need to be asked at this point, but you can't, you can't help but wonder that that's going to be lost in a quite superficial debate we're having at the moment is what regulators should we have, yeah. what neat fix could be brought in, but it seems there's a much deeper problem here how couldn't they that's the that's the danger isn't it jacob there's almost like ass covering is put ahead of you know doing the right thing protecting people who are vulnerable yeah well there's almost a kind of generalizable lesson here about the way in which the nhs as an organization as a, as a system of management really operates which is that at every turn whether you're kind of got serious concerns about the health of your baby mm. or whether like your your one of your grandparents has gone into a cow home or or some whatever it is or even if you're just trying to get an appointment with your gp the way the nhs seems increasingly set up and structured is to insulate itself from the kind of concerns uh, and and problems that both practitioners 
and the public have. And it's set up like to shield itself Mm. from having to deal with people's concerns because when we go into details, it's overstretched or underfunded or whatever it is, or just the the system of management is so bureaucratic. But it is like a microcosm, a very horrible, grotesque, but microcosm of how the NHS seems to operate. And Tom, I mean, some people were quick to find an explanation for Lucy Letby's Mm. crimes. Um, They're blaming whiteness. And now this wasn't just the usual race baiters that mm-hmm. you see on Good Morning Britain or on Twitter. This was quite high up people, people including from the Royal College of Nursing, who thought racism was really what was happening here. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I was a little bit shocked, although maybe not that surprised, that even the usual suspects got stuck in with it. There was this kind of moment of quiet when this mm-hmm. first kicked off. You mm-hmm. think, surely they're not going to try it with this. Yeah. But then again, of course, they did. So all, all the people one would expect whether it's um, Dr. Shola or it's a kind of po-faced identitarian article in Glamour magazine or the usual yeah. kind of tweeters all weighing in and saying, of course, this is about whiteness, this is about white privilege, that um, the thing about white women is they cry and they can carry their way out of any situation, including mm. murdering children. I mean, on one level, it just feels kind of absurd. And you think, is that all you have to offer public discussion, your same old grift in a situation like this? But as you say, it's been echoed at much higher levels. So Sheila Sobrani, who's the president of the Royal College of Nursing, rehearse some of these points. And in particular, the point that she was making, the point others have made, is that um, essentially, on the one hand, Lucy Letby was um, given a free pass in a way that, say, an ethnic minority woman wouldn't be because she was white, because she was seen as kind of saintly, all of these Mm. kind of assertions essentially been made. And on the flip side, that one of the consultants who was, again, complaining to the management of the hospital trying to get action taken is a gentleman called Dr. Ravi Jayaram, who um, is also a kind of TV doctor as well as a consultant in a particular hospital. And they just latched onto one interview that he'd given to ITV News, I believe, yeah. and latched onto the fact that um, he is of South Asian background to say if he was a white doctor, he would have been listened to. Now, he has not made that point. Yeah. No one is in, within the case, I see, has made that point. It's also worth pointing out that the first doctor to raise concerns in this particular case was Dr. Stephen Breary, who's a white gentleman. The fact that we even have to kind of top them up here shows yeah. how grim <laughs> this sort of discussion is. Um, and, you know, his supposed excess of white privilege didn't mean he was taken any more seriously. So, as I say, one is tempted to sort of just say, you fucking idiots, you're really going to try and do that in this situation what's wrong with you but i think it also does speak to the on the one hand the blind faith of these people like they just see systemic racism everywhere yeah but on the other hand the shamelessness of them that they're quite happy to make their little pat arguments off the back of a string of dead infants Mm. so i think um it's a new low among many new lows for that corner of politics, I suppose. I mean, there was another sort of wing of the anti-Terrians who were making the point, oh, look, Lucy Lucy Lepp isn't trans or a drag queen, so why don't you shut up about that issue? Mm. I mean, <laughs> Jacob, what do you make of that? There seems that there really is nothing that people won't exploit to make a kind of identitarian point. Yeah, as, as Tom said, it's, it's very, very low. I mean, some of the things you saw were, were almost the, the logical conclusion of them when they were kind of saying that, oh, well, if it had been a kind of a, a black doctor or something, then they'd have been caught quicker. Yeah. Is, is, is that we shouldn't be looking for these, mm. is that we shouldn't be giving people the, the benefit of the doubt rather than investigating these things really seriously. As, as Tom said, it's, it's a real low, but it just speaks to the way in which this, uh, the kind of the discourse of identitarianism has infected all of public life. And, you know, Tom, can we really process profound things like, I don't know, evil or something like that when we're dealing with this such a superficial kind of discourse. I think that's that's exactly the right point because um, when I was sort of tweeting about this, you get a little bit of pushback from people saying, well, you know, you've just written about this case and what you think went wrong. It's not to say that these things aren't political issues in some sort of sense. It's not to say that cases like this don't prompt 
political, social questions mm. that one needs to be interrogated. The point in this situation is that they are taking a case which has absolutely nothing to do with their own particular, you know, if you're being generous, call it area of expertise, if you weren't grift. Yeah. Um, and just <laughs> trying to warp it in order to fit that particular agenda on the basis of zero evidence, not even on the basis of any concerns around race or racism or discrimination raised by any of the players involved. And that's what makes it so particularly toxic. And it does make you think that whilst, uh, you know, it's, it's, we'd, we'd be ridiculous to suggest this has dominated the Lucy Letby discourse, but it's certainly fair to say that there are so many issues in society which get funneled into the kind of identitarian discussion, which only gets us further away from actually having a much more meaningful debate about where we need to go and what has gone wrong. So as you say, on one level, it's a distraction, but also I think it's the fact that unfortunately, so many people that's how they see the world. Yeah. And you've got to kind of clear that away before you can have any serious discussions about a lot of these issues. I'm at the nail salon. What? I'm at the grocery store. What? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Have you ever had one of those light bulb moments where you've thought, I could totally sell this? Or maybe you've had a million great business ideas that have been marinating in your brain for years. Either way, let's face it. Bringing these great ideas to life is never easy. Luckily, there's a solution, and it sounds like this. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform that'll help you start, run, and grow your business. Right now, Shopify is helping to revolutionize millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling antique finds or homemade wines, Shopify makes everything simple. It takes the confusion out of the selling process so you can go all in on growing your business. Every minute, people just like you are bringing their projects to life and making their first sales with Shopify. And once your shop is up and running, Shopify takes care of practically all the rest. For instance, getting paid is really easy because Shopify instantly accepts all payment types. The other great thing about Shopify is how much you can customize your online shop. No matter what your style is, you can connect with new customers to drive growth. Shopify even helps you maintain those all-important customer relationships to keep them coming back for more. Whether your goals are big or small, Shopify can help make them happen. It's the best way to get the confidence you need and to take your business to the next level. So what are you waiting for? Get serious about your passion and start using Shopify today. You can sign up now for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash spiked. Go to shopify.co.uk slash spiked to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.co.uk slash spiked. So London Mayor Sadiq Khan is under fire for trying to suppress scientific research. Essentially, City Hall, when whenever pieces of research uh, came along that looked as if they were contradicting the need for the ULES expansion. Uh, some of the mayor's acolytes were trying to discredit scientists or suppress their views or even have studies rewritten. Now, Jacob, I mean, this is quite interesting because obviously Sadiq Khan has said that, you know, the ULES is backed by science. And if you're not on his side, then you're a denier of science. Possibly you're also a conspiracy theorist. Possibly you're on the side of um, diseased lungs and asthma. 
and everything else. It he has presented this as a very sort of um, all or nothing type uh, scheme. And firstly, Fraser, your article on this goes into supreme detail on this, and people should really read it. And I think it's is shocking the degree to which uh, the mayor and the mayor's office have leaned on supposedly neutral scientific organizations. I mean, which tells you a lot about how science supposedly operates yeah. today. That actually is very little disinterested. Uh, research and all and there's a huge influence of funding organizations and politically commissioned research and and all of these things which which we know are are designed from the outset to generate a particular conclusion yeah because it starts with um the imperial college's environmental research group and essentially they've they've been given eight hundred thousand pounds from the mayor's office um over the past few years they were given about 45 grand to do this particular study and it says all the things that the mayor wants to hear you know, that um, the air pollution is killing thousands of people. ULEZ is going to radically increase people's life expectancy. Mm. Oh, and also the worst place for air pollution happens to be out of London, just where it's going to expand into. Um, but then another group of scientists at Imperial um, produced some findings, and they say that actually the inner London ULEZ that had been around since around 2019 hasn't reduced nitrogen levels by very much, by about three, it reduced them by about 3%. And it's had a negligible effect on other pollution. So obviously, the conclusion there is ULEZ is not going to save thousands of lives, like the mayor claims. So instead of sort of uh, accepting that, taking those criticisms on board, you had uh, Shirley Rodriguez, one of the deputy um, deputy mayor for the environment, writing to scientists in you know her preferred scientists, trying to essentially discredit those other people at Imperial, writing to Professor. Uh, Frank Kelly saying, you know, we need a rebuttal. I'm disappointed <laughs> by these findings. How dare you? Uh, how, dare, yeah, yeah. how dare they say something else? And it has a, it's, it's had a real chilling effect on those um, particular researchers who came up with, the, with those findings. And prior to this as well, there was even, you know, this goes back years and years. Into, back in 2018, uh, some researchers at Queen Mary produced a study for The Lancet just before it was about to be published. Um, Shirley Rodriguez, again, from the mayor's office, writes and says, I don't like this conclusion. Mm-hmm. Can you change it to say that the you know these kind of air traffic schemes are more effective? These scientists found that there was no effect on children's health. So yeah, we just see when the science doesn't fit the politics, the science has to change. It's yeah. really disturbing. And it makes intuitive sense where the ULES question is concerned as well, that they would have to kind of confect this evidence because of the fact that that's always one thing that I think will strike most people on a con- common sense level is not making much sense. Like London mm. is not like pea soup sort of uh, air quality of old you know yeah. this is it's quite clear that this is a much reduced problem given the fact that there's been certain developments and so on which have meant that is not as much of an issue um the sort of apocalyptic images that um Sadiq Khan will kind of dredge up about you know children never being able to see adulthood because of the consequence of poor air quality and asthma mm. and dying and so on it's always been nonsense. And actually, it was even when this debate first kicked off, you know, if you really read into it and as you put in your piece, you're talking about potentially, 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 if everything goes brilliantly to plan and it really cleans up the air to the extent that it's like in the countryside, someone might get a few extra days or weeks out of yeah. their life. In a in hundred years' time. It's, as well. ridiculous. it's not even like <laughs> no one alive today will see the benefits of this. And it just it just underlines the fact that ULES is at best, a virtue signal, mm. and at worst, a money-making machine. <laughs> That's yeah. essentially what it is that we're talking about. It's either just a way to signal that I'm, I care terribly about the environment, um, to want to make London a world leader in X, Y, Z causes, Sadiq Khan might be given to wanting to do, 
on the flip side, it's just a case that um, you know City Hall is in the toilet financially, and this is actually quite useful. So yeah. you can't draw anything else but bad conclusions about this. But undergirding it, as you, all of it, as you say, is that um, rather than evidence-based policy, policy-based evidence, which has been a feature of political debates for decades now, really, yeah. even though this is a particularly galling example of mm. it, I guess. I, I think at the same time, it's kind of pointing to this this policy-based evidence. Though mm. We do also have to grapple with the fact that Sure, they needed to concoct an evidence base in order to mm-hmm. give this some legitimacy, but it also did play on some kind of fears that people do have and this widespread sense that cities are kind of dirty, dangerous places, yeah. that the car is a symbol of our kind of uh, Ill, like bad mastery of the planet. And that we have to, on the one hand, expose, as you did really well, the kind of the dodgy evidence underpinning it, mm-hmm. but also make a case for what's valuable about being able to use your car in a city. And that yeah. not just that people's livelihoods kind of depend on it or that it helps old people get around the rest of it, but the, it's part and parcel of living in a, in a city. And people know from it, all of those suburbs where they closed down the high street and pedestrianized it. And everybody knows that that led to mm-hmm. kind of dead life in the, in the middle of their, in the middle of their suburbs. The same thing is on the cards for cities. And we have to kind of make a case for that, that freedom to use the city as we see fit. Definitely. I suppose it's the way that this sort of the science, whether it's right or wrong, is used as a sort of cudgel to dismiss more political, you know, arguments, more mm-hmm. political arguments about, you know, what we want our cities to look like, um, what kind of freedoms we think people deserve or, you know, if we're against um, poor people being hammered by this ridiculous tax. And the, the shape that we can't get out of this topic without talking about the doubling down of Sadiq Khan in response to any of these criticisms, oh, yeah. not this That's in particular, true, yeah. but, you know, everything from, you know, the bloody nose that his policy got as a consequence of the South Ryslip by-election, the pushback he's got on whether it's LTNs or whether it's the ULEZ or what have you. The recourse is just saying they're a bunch of COVID-denying conspiracy theorists, probably far right as well, mm. just kind of throwing the kitchen sink at them <laughs> and seeing what will potentially take them down. It's um, On the one hand, it's the response of someone um, whose political position is so unassailable. London, you know, Labour is so dominant in London and he's yeah. so has seemingly been so streets ahead. But I also think it betrays a certain level of desperation. He is knocked in a way that he hasn't been for his entire tenure so far. Um, and... Also, it's quite clear that he's kind of, even if he can cling on to the mayoralty, what he kind of represents is sort of losing the argument in the country at large, even across much of London. So I think the it's shameless the way that he's responded to it, but also is a bit mark of desperation, surely, as well. For his next live podcast, Brendan O'Neill will be in conversation with Michael Schellenberger. For those of you who don't know, Michael Schellenberger is a best-selling author, and he's one of the journalists behind the Twitter files. Michael and Brendan will be talking about everything from the censorship industrial complex to the cult of climate change and much, much more. The event is free if you're a Spike supporter. All you have to do is claim your free ticket from the online donor hub. And if you're not a Spike supporter, then now is the time to sign up. For just £5 per month, not only will you get access to this free event, you'll also get access to many, many other exclusive perks from Add free reading to access to the comment section and access to all kinds of other events like this one. So to become a Spike supporter, just go to spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. That's spikes-online.com forward slash supporters. See you at the event. So a book called Grandad's Pride has been shown to preschoolers in the UK. It features essentially two um, elderly uh, gay gentlemen wearing uh, leather fetish gear, uh, embracing each other. 
and uh, scenes of trans men, if you like, um, with their double mastectomy scars. Interestingly, um, some parents in Hull tried to pull their four-year-old out of school after the school had shown this book around to the kids. Um, and the school's reaction was to call them bigots, essentially. Now the school has agreed um, that it's probably not appropriate for four-year-olds. Tom, what have you made of this story? Well, you, you do feel like these are, it's hard to believe that these stories when they come across. And yet mm. every time and time again, this is what we're seeing. There does seem to be this very kind of effortless capture of everything from a reading list to a, the library at a preschool by this ideology and also just the lack of appreciation of how this stuff isn't really appropriate. I mean, yeah. it's just, I, you do wonder how you could get into a position where you're a teacher or someone who runs one of these schools and thinks that's just absolutely fine because we want to be progressive, don't we? Mm. We want to be pro-LGBT. There's just such a thing as age appropriate. Yeah. Is that such a <laughs> radical, bizarre position that one has to take in this particular situation? If that makes you some kind of crazy conservative, then sign me up. But it's just obvious that previously there's always been when you're talking about kind of school curriculums and school libraries and so on, there's always a bit of kind of back and forth about what is and isn't appropriate. Sometimes that can be taken down a very kind of a liberal route. Sometimes, mm. you know, the conservative Christians of old campaigning to get anything that might feature a homosexual character taken out of a high school library and so on. Um, but, you know, the baseline that everyone would agree on, there's certain things that it's not acceptable to show to young children, sexually yeah. explicit material, anything which could deeply upset them. You don't want to be at the same, you know, when you're dealing with, kids who are five, six, seven years old, you're not going to read them the Marcus Sard or something. like That yeah. was surely understood. And yet with the whole gender ideology thing, that's gone completely out of the window, it seems. Jake, what have you made of it? I mean, there's just sort of a basic failure of common sense or of understanding what's appropriate for children. Yeah, well, I think one of the most depressing things about the whole incident, and like every other incident of its kind, is that no matter whether you think, on the one hand, that uh, maybe kind of... It's a creepy bordering on kind of paedophilic, this obsession people have about educating very, 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 very young children about mm. the intricacies of different kinds of sex. Or if you just think that, you know what, at schools, wouldn't it be useful if the kids, even at kind of younger younger ages, but if they were learning kind of actual stuff that resembles education. Yeah. Whatever your whatever your kind of problem is with it, if you if you bring up the fact that maybe this might not be appropriate, suddenly it's like stoking a culture war. Yeah. And of course it's it's the opposite. It's people reacting to a culture war that's being waged on them. This attempt mm. to colonize their lives and their children's lives by hammering home kind of all of the obsessions of certain adults. And that's what people are reacting to. It's not people kind of who kick back against this waging a culture war. It's people objecting to being having a culture war waged on them. Yeah, and that does seem to be—it does seem to be a form of indoctrination rather than education. And it's all you know, because it's always one way, isn't it? It's always usually promoting gender ideology, for instance. Mm. You know, it's not just this book. You you're going to have a drag visit from a drag queen in your school every term or whatever it might be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the point you met Jacob about how you know who started this cultural war really. I think it also speaks to the fact that when people on the other side of this argument try to push back, they'll often try to characterise the people who are concerned about these books showing up in preschools as, again, a kind of rehash of a sort of blue rinse conservative mm. 30, 40 years ago. Getting Section 28 all over again. Section 28, or if you look to America, you know, the kind mm. of, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret sort of situation or something like that. I think that gets things entirely the wrong way around. In those situations, you had, say, um, quite religious, intolerant people trying to impose their view of the world onto a school curriculum or a school library. In this instance, we have um, very intolerant pseudo-religious people trying to impose their view on school from within the school itself. That's mm. essentially what we're talking about. And the, the responses, particularly in the UK, but in the US as well, 
have come from people from across the political spectrum, the parents who have just said, this is too much. This yeah. is obviously inappropriate. It's a, entirely a kind of common sense check. But again, it's just another reminder of who's the one who is starting these culture wars. It's quite clearly one side, not the other. So Yevgeny Prigozhin has been presumed dead uh, after a plane crash earlier this week in Russia. Several months ago, he very famously led a mutiny with his Wagner group against the Russian army. And perhaps it's fair to say he's been a dead man walking ever since. Jacob, what have you made of this development? Yeah, I mean, so a lot of people have been saying, well, revenge is a dish best served cold. And that's why Putin had to kind of wait a little while before knocking off Prigozhin. But in, in a way, this even the timing of it speaks to how deeply shaken Putin and the, the kind of Putin regime was by the events of mm. the, the mutiny, that he had to really wait a long time. If you go into some of the detail, as people who follow this very closely do, not only have there been kind of lots of low-level commanders that have been uh, reshuffled, but people kind of right, right at the top uh, too. And th- this shows you how shaken he was. It had to wait a long time until the ducks were in a row. Mm. And then only finally can kind of the, the hammer blow fall down um, on Prigozhin, and not just Prigozhin, but waiting for a good moment when it looks like the entire kind of leadership of Wagner were were done too. So I think the lesson to draw from this is that uh, Putin's still very shaken by that mutiny attempt, yeah. but also that, I mean, this is not like one of those, whether you like him or not, that he did X, Y, Z, but but Prigozhin was an effective figure in Putin's administration, and it shows the degree to which this classic kind of difficulty that authoritarian regimes have of being able to nurture talent, because as soon as someone good comes along, they're immediately a threat to the to the, to the leader. Mm-hmm. This is kind of happening right across the board in Russia, and it does present these kind of age-old difficulties that happen in especially Russian kind of autocracies, that where where does any kind of decent leadership outside of Putin happen in the Russian regime. And I don't think there's a good answer to that. And and Tom, I mean, the coup attempt, the mutiny, whatever you want to call it, that was a real humiliation for mm. Putin, probably the most significant challenge to his rule since he's been in power. Yeah, completely. And I, th- I completely agree with Jacob that it betrays even this after the fact seeming assassination. We still don't know the full details, but you know, it's we were all waiting for something like this to happen, shall we say, whether it came in the form of a plane crash or an open window or a cup of tea. Mm. Um, again, betrays a sense of weakness because in an authoritarian system in which the leader is more or less unassailable, first, unassailable, first of all, you don't have people mounting such bombastic coup attempts mm-hmm. in the first place and doing so knowing that they had at least some support mm. in the higher-ups within the Russian army, which is why, again, as, as Jacob was referencing there, you know, Sergei Surovikin has basically been kind of unpersoned at this point, seen as sacked and seen as a person who was most sympathetic to Prigozhin. You also don't have a situation in which you um, you have someone be able to kind of mount this kind of coup attempt. And similarly, even if someone does, they'd be dealt with quite quickly. They'd be locked up for the rest of their lives. Probably worse would happen to them. You wouldn't have to create this weird kind of brokered faux peace in which he goes off to Belarus for a few weeks. Pretty soon after, is seen glad handing with various kind of Central African dictators, <laughs> pretending that he's carrying on as normal. You know, if um, Putin's position was so firm, he would have dealt with him much more effectively and much more quickly. All that being said, there's also a, a sort of tendency for people, and we saw it very much when the coup attempt first kicked off, to get very ahead of themselves yeah. to feel like you know this is instantly about to crumble. Obviously, that's not the case. Mm. And as Jacob was saying, you know, what is the alternative? He's not being. This is not a coup attempt mounted on the back on the backs of liberal reformers, of course. Yeah. All that being said, it does expose that fundamental fragility which exists in a system in w- which is authoritarian, which is so reliant on these 
warlords effectively in last part, yeah. not just Prigozhin, but others as well, that, um, again, it can't even necessarily cohere and stamp its own authority. So I think that's one thing. It's definitely a sign that things are beginning to become undone, but it's only really beginning, it feels like. Yeah, Jacob, I just wanted to ask you about that. I mean, the prospects of sort of, um, you know, Russia unraveling or, you know, the state of the Russian state, really. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, the key thing to bear in mind in one way is that the fact that all of these examples that we see, whether it's, I mean, Ukraine hitting a, a air defense system, a very advanced one right inside Crimea, or whether mm. it's uh, the Prigozhin mutiny, like all of these things point to a fundamental brittleness, a weakness at the, the heart of the Russian state. That doesn't mean at the same time that things are about to fall apart. Yeah. And the fact is that uh, in response to these developments, what, ha- what is happening and is the increasing transformation of Russian society from one where the military occupied a kind of v- very much a second order position in Russian society to one that is an increasingly militarized society. There is a big open question about how much Russian society can sustain that kind of transformation because it involves people becoming involved in the, the mechanics and the everyday realities of war in a way that lots of people in Russia uh, certainly don't want to. But it it is a mistake just to think that just because we expose weakness or weaknesses are exposed that things are about to kind of collapse that said it does point to the fact that it is a brittle system yeah and brittle like the word brittle is the key one that, that it's kind of it's tough until it snaps mm. and that's the kind of danger with russia is that kind of sudden unraveling of things and could i mean could you even say that the very reliance on groups like wagner was itself a sign of you know weakness that essentially putin unable to use his conventional forces. Yeah, for sure. And the, the difficulty that Putin's had is on the one hand, there's kind of motivating people to fight in the regular army, but similarly, not wanting the army also to get too powerful, become too too much of a center of control. And that's why the rise of uh, private military groups such as Wagner, which is one of many now, and even the kind of official uh, Russian military has died sprouting up its own private military groups. And But not just the, the private military groups, but also the Chechen forces and all the yeah. rest of it. It speaks to this way in which Putin's attempt to wage a war, which is uh, which hasn't gone very well, but has attempted to wage a war without fully mobilizing Russian society because he knows that most people, prob- who knows the exact number, but most people in Russia don't want the war. They're prepared to go along with it to a certain degree, but yeah. every time another kind of bar gets raised, that poses serious risks for Putin. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.